Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful to call you our Father, and we ask that you will join us today, that we can spend this time to get to know you more fully as you would like us to know you, that we will be able to glorify you in our lives and share a message that will bring others into a loving relationship with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're doing lesson number three in our quarterly Psalms, and the title is The Lord Reigns, and we're going to actually start with Sabbath and Monday's lesson together because the title for Monday's lesson is the title for the week's lesson, which is The Lord Reigns. And the lesson points us to Psalms 93 for our memory text, and I thought it's a very short psalm, only five verses, that maybe we can just read all five verses and we're going to read it from the NIV, and then we're going to read it from the Remedy and, and see what you think of these two versions of Psalms 93. So this is Psalms 93 from the NIV. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. The throne, your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. The, sea, the seas have lifted up, O Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. Mightier than the thunder of the great waters. Mightier than the breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your statutes stand firm. Holiness adorns your house. For endless days, O Lord. So do you, do you love the psalm? And, and do, you, do you understand the meaning? What do you understand the meaning of the psalm to be? Extolling the majesty of God. Absolutely. The question I have, is it simply and only a testimony of the creatorship, eternal essence, and infinite power and majesty of God? Or is the psalm, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit, inspired in the context of a universal war over God's character and trustworthiness, and therefore is it intended to inspire us with eternal truths about God in that context. In other words, is there deeper meaning contained in the psalm that goes beyond the obvious meaning that God is creator, God is infinite, God is eternal, God is powerful, and God is majestic? Is there meaning in the psalm that goes beyond those eternal truths. And I, I, I will offer the remedy paraphrase as a, as a consideration of a deeper meaning. And this is from the remedy. The Lord reigns supreme, covered in majesty. The Lord is covered in majesty, the majesty of infinite love, secured and bound by the strength of infinite truth. The world is established as a showcase of your methods of love. Your design laws for life cannot be changed. Your rulership was established long ago when you built all reality. You created time and existed before time began. Seas of selfish beings have risen up, O Lord. The seas of the selfish have raised their voices in opposition to your rule. The seas of the selfish have pounded against your kingdom of truth and love. Love is mightier than the thundering flood of selfishness. Truth is mightier than the stormy seas of lies and deceit. The Lord, creator God on high, is mighty. Your design protocols for life can never be changed. 
holiness and healthiness, perfection in all things, adorn your house for all eternity. What do you think? Well, I think he explained it more than I could have explained it in my reading, because when I read the Psalms, I, I never thought of it in terms of like you have just explained it. So the paraphrase obviously magnifies a certain interpretation or meaning, but the question is, does, my, does the meaning that I've, that I've, I've brought out violate the original text? No. 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 It magnifies it. Mm-hmm. And, and do you see support from others? As, as you were reading my paraphrase, could you see how I was gathering some of that from other Bible? For instance, the, the NIV says, the seas have lifted up, O oh God. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. And I have interpreted the seas of selfish beings have risen up. The seas of, self, of the selfish have raised their voice in opposition to your rule. The seas of the selfish have pounded against your kingdom of truth and love. Is there Bible texts that give me legitimate biblical basis for interpreting seas as people? Yes. 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 Water is a symbol for people. Yes, Revelation 17, 15. That's exactly right. So, so yes, I've, I've added some interpretive license here, but it's within the harmony of what the Scripture itself does. And I think as we read Scripture, the Holy Spirit would like us to integrate the Bible as we read it to the whole landscape of Scripture where we bring in these elements and we can see and discern the deeper meaning. And I think, the, of course, the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit in the context of the war over God's character and government. And I think it is designed to help us solidify our loyalty and love. And so it certainly magnifies the creatorship and 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 uh, power and an eternal essence of God. But I think it goes beyond and, and helps us see some light into the, into the great controversy. And in fact, in the context of the, of the great controversy, what is the most important truth that the Holy Spirit would want the scriptures to lead us to know is the most important truth that God is powerful or that God is not only powerful, but he's trustworthy. trustworthy. Doesn't the Bible itself teach that the devils believe in God's power and it scares them and they tremble? Right. The power part alone isn't what wins the war. It's the trustworthy part that ultimately wins us back to love and trust. So that's why I think the uh, the those truths are there, and they're there for us to be di- to discern. First paragraph says the Psalms unswervingly uphold the foundational belief in God's sovereign reign. The Lord created and sustains everything that He has created. He is the sovereign King over the whole world, and He rules the world with justice and righteousness. His laws and statutes are good and bring life to those who keep them. The Lord is a just judge who ensures that the world remains well-ordered, and he does, does so by rewarding the righteous and punishing the wicked. But in his time, not ours. Hmm. This paragraph has a lot to be thought through and evaluated, does it not? Yes. Let's start with the idea of God's sovereign reign. What does it mean? What do we understand God's sovereignty to be? How is God sovereign? And, and you know this question of God's sovereignty 
What it entails has generated debate throughout essentially the entire history of Christianity. How do we understand God's sovereignty? Does, it, does our understanding, well, in fact, before we answer it, what's the first question we always want to answer before we answer the big questions? <laughs> what law lens? So if we understand God's law functions like human law and government, how do we understand God's sovereignty then? Powerful. Yeah. And this is the common description of sovereignty in Christianity. If we understand God's law is a system of imposed rules, and he governs with his externally enforcing authority, then sovereignty becomes very Calvinistic. And it's actually taught, you can look this up, God's sovereignty is taught to be two primary things. First, it's his right to control everything. And second, it's his use of power to control everything. Therefore, it's taught that while evil is still evil, it is good for evil to have happened because it couldn't have happened except God in his sovereignty chose for it to happen. This is how some people think of God. He's in control of all things. And evil is evil, but it couldn't happen unless God in his sovereignty willed for it to happen. Therefore, there's some good purpose for the evil. Do you find that convoluted and contradictory? Yeah. yeah. So God's creatures don't have free will. And this is the tension. Yeah. This is the absolute tension. Yeah. So they will so those who accept God's law functions like human law will describe God's sovereignty in ways like this. The right to exercise his ruling power over his creation or God is in control of all things or God controls everything that happens. And you will hear this coming out all the time in various comments from certain Christian groups on world events and things that happen and so forth. And then the question arises as you've arisen, what about human free will? Do we have free will or does God's sovereignty determine our decisions for us? Are we predestined by God to do evil and good things because he controls all things? Or is God's control limited by our free will? And then you'll have others arguing, well, he's, in, he's sovereign, but he voluntarily surrenders control. And our free will limits God. And then we have those argue, well, then you have a limited God. You don't have a sovereign God. And this is the tension they set up. Well, so, bef yes, question. What's the purpose of preaching the gospel if God makes all decisions, who's going to be saved, who's going to be lost? What's the point of preaching the gospel? And some people take that very argument and don't do very much along those lines because they've concluded it really doesn't matter anyway. But the preaching, they would probably say, has to do with you fulfilling the purpose God called you for, not because it's actually going to change anyone, but you get your joy, you get your love, you get your validation, you've, you feel fulfilled as a person of God doing the good thing, and this is probably how they would argue that. Well, I hate to be unkind to Calvinists, but, but I'm sure, and I'm sure some of them are, even in spite of what they believe, they still have a good relationship with God somehow. But I, I think the Calvinist God is a monster. Do you think the monster version of God is limited to the Calvinists? No. 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 
<laughs> so if you actually start describing the elements or attributes that make God look like a monster, you're, you're going to find that those elements transcend across the landscape of all denominations. There are versions within all the nom- denominations that teach a God who is the source of of torture, sometimes eternal torture. Sometimes he performs miracles to keep people alive as long as they deserve while he tortures and kills them. But you will find these versions of a torturing monstrous God in all the different denominations. So I wouldn't want to select that one group. I would want to identify the truth and help set set hearts and minds free, regardless of what particular monstrous version they might be struggling with. But let's get back to our question of sovereignty. We want to answer this question. We want to answer it in light of truth. So, but with this idea that that the common version is how I set it up, what do you think would happen if you were counseling a rape victim or somebody whose family member was kidnapped by terrorists and killed by terrorists, either one, rape victim, family members killed by terrorists, and you said to them, don't worry, God is in control. Which 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 is not uncommonly said. That's right. You're right. Would such a statement to those people be therapeutic? No. Would it be healing? Would it be helpful? No. Or would saying those words to the rape victim, don't worry, God is in control, most like most likely put barriers up to their relation with God if they believed it. Definitely. Yep. Unless they feel like um, that God being in control means Big Brother is going to get them in the end. Though I have no power over them, Big Brother is going to do it for me. So would it be true or false to say to the rape victim, God is in control? So let's walk through those options I gave you. If we say it is true, and some people will say it's true, God is in control. What does that say to the rape victim about her rape and about God? Did God instigate the rape? Did God motivate, control, and inspire the rapist to rape them? Did God want the person to be raped? Did, is, if God is in control and chose for the rapist to rape, then does that mean the rape is just and good? If we conclude that the rape is evil, but God is in control and still caused the rape, then does God support, choose, and cause evil? Is God the source of evil? And how could anyone ever trust a God who chooses for rape to happen? If we tell the rape victim that God is not in control, are we speaking truthfully? Or are we misrepresenting God in some way? Are we limiting God's power and sovereignty? Do we enhance or undermine faith in God if we teach that God doesn't have control over his creation? Is a God with limited control merely like the many regional pagan gods who only had power in a certain region or over certain forces of nature and and, uh, they were obliged to to, uh, respond or be controlled by other forces over them? Would it bring healing to the rape victim to believe a God who's not in control? Would we be able to move forward in this sinful world with less anxiety, if if the person who's suffered trauma would they be able to move forward with less anxiety if they believe in a God who has lim- who has is limited in their abilities to protect and save because they have limited control? 
Do you see tension in these positions? Yes. yes. And this is the conflict that's been raging in Christianity for millennia. And what is the root to all of the apparent problems that I have brought out in this scenario? What's the root to all of them? And they all evaporate when you take away the root problem. How do you see the law? The cause of all this confusion, the cause of it all, comes from the author of confusion. Yes. And his single lie that God's law is imposed and works like human law. You clear up that and all this confusion on all these topics go away. You want me to show you how? Yes. (laughs) So when you understand that God's laws are the protocols upon which reality are built, such things as the laws of health, the laws of physics, the law of gravity, um, law of love, truth, worship, liberty, exertion, and all the other laws, then we understand that God is in control of what God controls. And God controls himself and all his laws. He sustains reality. All things are made by him. And without him, nothing is made that it has been made. And all things hold together through him. He sustains the reality. And one of those laws is the laws law that he sustains. He created and holds it firm is the law of liberty, which grants real freedom to sapient beings. Why? Because God is love, and love only exists in an atmosphere of freedom. Robots cannot choose, and robots cannot love. And if God acted to restrict freedom to choose, he would destroy love. Understanding design law, including the law of liberty, clears up the apparent contradictions. God is absolutely sovereign over his creation. He has created all. He sustains it all. He holds it all together. And one of the laws upon which it operates is the law of liberty. And when you understand this, then you can clear up contradictions in Scripture. Like, and they should show you this slide now, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the Bible also says in another place, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And the Bible also says in a third place, Pharaoh's heart became hard or was hardened, just in a neutral way. All three statements are in Scripture. God hardened it. He's the action causing it. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He did it, and it just happened. Are all three statements inspired by God? Are all three true? If you have the imposed law of you, then someone has to be responsible. And and we have tension, and they will have arguments, and they will make God the sovereign, and ultimately God made it happen. And thus Pharaoh didn't really have a choice. He was a puppet that God forced a hard heart upon for the purposes of God's sovereignty and the working out of a bigger plan. That that Pharaoh's choices really were not free choices. They were dictated or determined by God's power over Pharaoh. This is how it's taught, but it's all a lie. When you understand design law, then you understand how reality works. And we understand that all three statements are true. And the fact, get your mind around this now, the fact that the Bible describes it in all three ways is proof, is evidence that design law understanding is the correct understanding of Scripture because it's describing how reality works and how does a hard heart 
actually become hardened. How does that occur? It is when the individual chooses to reject love and reject truth and instead act upon fear, selfishness, and lies. And when that happens, the heart hardens, the conscience is seared. Then how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? By presenting truth to Pharaoh and leaving Pharaoh free to accept or reject it. It was the accepting or rejecting of truth that results in either healing or hardening. The act of choosing to accept or reject truth, to embrace love or embrace selfishness, to steal, lie, and cheat, or be honest, truthful, and loyal, changes the person who makes the choice. Without the truth being presented and the choice to accept or reject, Pharaoh's heart would not have become as hardened. Thus, God hardened Pharaoh's heart through the repetitive truths brought to him through Moses and the plagues that revealed all of the gods he were worshiping as false gods, and he had the choice to reject them and accept the true God, but instead he rejected the truth and hardened his heart in denial. This is how reality works and how God is in control. One might then ask, well, if God foreknew that Pharaoh would reject the truth and thus would become hardened, why did God do it then? Because of reality. Pharaoh, like every human born since Adam, was born in sin and conceived in iniquity. He had a terminal sin condition, and without the remedy brought by God, he would die of sin. And thus the only possible path of salvation for Pharaoh was the truth. And because God is love, God loved Pharaoh and had the truth brought to Pharaoh to give Pharaoh an opportunity to accept the truth and be saved. But Pharaoh chose to reject it and thus hardened himself in rebellion to the point that he was seared his conscience, destroyed the faculties and became unsavable. And so we find all of these things are true. And so what do we say to the rape victim? If the person is a believer, and that's a very critical point, and when they're ready in their recovery for this type of dis discussion, they're not ready in the immediate aftermath. They have to be brought to a certain point that they're ready to process on this level. But if all those things are true, then they can have a discussion about how love works and that love only exists in atmosphere of freedom. And that if the sovereign creator had made us all robots, beings programmed to act as he chooses, then such beings would simulate life, but they would not actually be alive. They cannot love, they cannot create, they cannot grow, develop, advance, hope. They cannot be friends and develop friendships. And God created human beings in his image to be like God in our entire being, to love, to create, to be loyal, to develop friendships, and especially friendship with him. But all of this requires real genuine freedom. Thus, the one of God's laws that he built reality to operate upon and that he sustains and protects and will not break is the law of liberty that leaves sapient beings free to choose for themselves. And when Lucifer chose to rebel and chose evil, God did not use power to destroy him or stop him, but let him left him free and countered the assault 
with self-sacrificial truth and love, ultimately sending Jesus to take the responsibility of eliminating the damage and restoring love and trust into our hearts and ultimately healing all the harm that's been caused. That's the conversation. Wow. Yes, question. In other cases, um, you know, the abuse started with me at four and I had no reasoning powers, but God, Mother took me to Cradle Row, and in Cradle Row, it's like God gave me a knowing in my heart, in this little heart, that I wouldn't do that to you. That's all. I wouldn't do that to you about this Jesus I heard about. And it hasn't, and that went on for until I was 16 and ran away from home. But I didn't realize until I came here and learned about the law of liberty that God gave him freedom, you know, and he didn't stop for, for those 16 years. But it, it kept me hanging on, knowing that God wouldn't do that to me. So. And, and would we rather live in a universe where we're all actually programmed robots and just go through a simulation that appears to be living beings, or you'd rather you live in a universe where we actually are free and have the capacity for love, trust, friendship, and relationship. What, what kind of universe would you rather live in? Yeah, and he sustained me even though I went through it. That's exactly right, and his grace is sufficient. Yeah. After all I said, what do we do with texts like this one out of Deuteronomy 32, 39? See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. How do we understand this? Didn't I just last week read the following quotation out of Adventist Review, December 8, 2023, and that, that quotation says, to spare us, God poured out his wrath against the violation of his law, sin, not on the violators of his law, sinners, but on the sinless Jesus, the only way that God could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In short, rather than killing us for violating his law, the father killed Jesus instead. Or to put it crudely, the father killed Jesus so he wouldn't have to kill us. And then didn't I quote last week, Hebrews 2.14 that reads, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And then didn't I just last week state that the author in that review article was attributing to God Satan's power of death? Didn't I just do that last week? Yes. yes. And didn't I just read this week, Deuteronomy 32.39, that says, again, see now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. So was I wrong last week? Is God truly the author of death, the source of death, the one who wields the power of death? No. Mm -mm. Can't be. But, but if God isn't the one who wields the power of death, then... Should we ignore this text in Deuteronomy? She said it's Old Testament. That's Old Covenant. We're in the New Covenant now. Or do we do we take the entire 66 books as a whole and, and they have to harmonize? We have to understand this in light of, of, of the rest of the inspired word. Yes. We can't ignore this, can we? No. 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 
So what we do is we, with, we do with all scripture we're gonna do with this text. We must place it in the setting of the rest of scripture, the entirety of the inspired record, the setting of the great controversy, and not take one text in isolation by itself to make a, a conclusion on. And just with a little more Bible searching, we can bring quick light to understand this text in Deuteronomy. And all we have to do is look over in 1 Samuel 2.6 and see if this just clears it up instantly. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. Did that clear it up for you? Not really. No. It didn't? No. Which didn't? It was on. It says, we see in this expression what's called Hebrew parallelism, where the second phrase enlightens the first phrase, and they parallel. So brings to death, parallels with going down to the grave, makes alive, parallels with raising up. Do you see the parallel? Yes. So, God is speaking of sometimes putting people in the grave. Ah, oh, there we go. I heard some say it louder. First, first death or first sleep. There you go. God is speaking that sometimes he puts people to sleep in the first death. But he also raises people out of sleep, out of the first death. That's what the Bible is saying in both of these texts. First death experience. Now, do you understand the Bible uses the term death to describe two different types of experiences, first death and second death. In the scripture, the first death, the Bible describes as a sleep death in which the body dies, but the soul, the individuality sleeps like a computer whose battery runs out of power. This is a timeout. This is a cessation of life. It's not the end of that person's life. Everybody comes up in a resurrection to continue their life at the resurrection. The second death is when the, both the body and soul are destroyed. It's the eternal death, the death that is the wages of sin death. And it occurs when the person is permanently disconnected or cut off from God for all eternity and from which there's no resurrection. Now, which death is this talking about that God says that he sometimes does? It's first death. First. first. This is first death, the sleep death, which is not the wages of sin death. This is an artificial state of suspended animation, a sleep waiting to the resurrection that is permitted by God's grace to limit the destructiveness of sin and rebellion and to allow for the plan of salvation to be carried out. If not for God's grace, there would be no first death experience, only second death. Yes or no? Yes. yes. So he's saying I've created a first death artificial sleep state for the purpose of grace and the purpose of salvation to be worked out and I will raise people out of that artificial state. And God in many places in scripture put people into that artificial state. He put many people to sleep and he will raise them out and they will finish their life coming out of the grave with the same current of thoughts as they went into the grave. But the second death is the eternal cessation of life. And that is what choosing Satan and his ways cause, as the Bible says, those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction, Galatians 6, 8. Or James 1, 15, sin when full grown brings forth death. 
Eternal death, the wages of sin death, does not come out from God. It comes out from sin, and it is the power that Satan wields. And so as we look at the statement out of the review last week, they were not referring to this sleep, artificial state of grace that God has permitted and caused to allow the salvation to occur. They were speaking as the punishment of sin being applied, which is the eternal death experience. That is the power wielded by Satan that they're attributing to God. So I stand by my conclusion about what was in the review last week. But I wanted to clear that up just in case somebody threw that Deuteronomy text at you and it confused you. It should never confuse you. When you understand design law, you should be able to discern through this stuff quickly and clearly asking the questions. Hey, what's going on? Let's let's research the wider range of scripture. Oh, wow. It's very clear. The Bible tells us this is a sleep death. This is the first death and he's going to raise out of the grave. That is not the wages of sin death. Okay, I'll pause. Did I make it clear? Did I make it more confusing? Thank you for that because yeah. I had written that down on a note to ask you about that specific thing this week. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. So did that clear it up or did I make it more confusing? Yeah, that, yeah, that helped. It makes it much more understandable than what I was raised with. Right. Amen. Yeah. And, I don't, and do you see? I don't know if go I ahead. repeat all that or understand that all, but it makes yeah. it understandable what's going on in this world and, and uh, why. And do you see how the design law just clears it up? Yeah. Then we also have this text that some people throw in there along with the death one, Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And some people throw this out there to take this sovereignty question. Yes, God is the one who makes it all happen in this way. However, this is uh, only one possible interpretation of the Hebrew, and this is an evidence of the way the translators see and understand the scripture through an imperialistic um, law view, human law view. But uh, Henry Wright in his book, A More Excellent Way, clarifies this verse, and this is what uh, he writes in his book. Some say God creates evil because Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. In the Strong's Concordance, the Hebrew word for create is bara, uh, it is the same word used when God created, but the second meaning for the Hebrew word create is to break down, tear down, cut down like wood. Now let's read this scripture again with Strong's definition in it. I form the light, I tear down and destroy darkness. I make peace, I tear down and cut down like wood everything that is evil. I am the author of the destruction of evil. Much wow. better. Thank yeah. You. yeah, what in the world? What? Okay. And so this is what happens in translation. Most words have more than one meaning. Think about our English words. Most of the words we have have a variety of different possible meanings. Just take an English word and go to a dictionary and you'll see a whole list of possible meanings that that word can have. And when you translate, the translators interpret based on their understanding of the setting. And if you have an imposed law punishing God construct, then that word can be, can, can be translated the way the, uh, the King James did it. But if you say, no, there's something wrong with that. No, God isn't the source of evil. No, God doesn't create. No. Then you have to look, dig a little deeper. Say, oh, there's a, oh, he, he creates light, and light destroys darkness. Yes, that's exactly what happens. 
In the first paragraph in Sabbath's lesson and the third paragraph in Monday's lesson, the author uses the language that God's reign is established in both justice and righteousness. They use that frame, justice, his, his rule, his sovereignty, his governance is established in justice and righteousness. What does that mean? When you read that, what comes to your mind? Really, what thoughts? When I read it, there's a specific thought. When I read that, God's rule is reign, come, reigns in justice and rightness, I immediately have a reaction to that. Do you? Yes. Yeah. What's your reaction to that? What law lends? Okay, what law lends? Great. And that leads to the conclusion? They have the Roman, uh, Romanistic view of it. <clears throat> well said. <laughs> you're, you're, you're now reading my notes because that's exactly what this type of a statement means. It means that the person who wrote it has a Romanized Christianity, the belief that God's law functions like human law. That's what these sentences are evidence of, the belief of an imperialism. Because in the Bible, there is no, the, these words do not exist in scripture. Justice, justification, righteousness, these words don't ex exist. They're English translations of the words that the prophets wrote in Greek or in Hebrew. But they didn't write those words. You get to heaven and say, tell us about that word justification, Paul. Paul goes, I never heard of that word. Because he didn't use the English word based on a Latin derivation. Words like justice and justify have a Latin root, and Latin equals Rome because the Roman culture, the Roman um, systems, Latin, and, and, and that's this Romanization that we get when we Latinize, and, and much of our judicial system in America is based on Latin rules and Latin words, and so we get this artificial layover of legalism that comes in when we use these Latin terms. But in the Greek New Testament, there is only one root word for all of these terms. I'm going to put them up on the slide. You're going to see them. The word just in the Greek is dikaios, and the word righteous in the Greek is dikaios, the exact same word, spelled the exact same way. One word, just or righteous. The word justifies or justify is dikaio, and, and the word be righteous is the same exact word. And the word justice is dikaiosune, and the word righteousness is dikai usune, the exact same word. Do you understand that every one of these words, just, justify, justice, justifies, can be translated righteous, be righteous, righteousness. It's the same Greek. And so when they say he rules in justice and righteousness, I guess we could say they're trying to amplify, but they typically mean something that justice and righteousness are somehow different. They're not. In God's kingdom, his justice and his righteousness are exactly the same thing. Well, now I had that underlined in my lesson. I thought that was a good quote. The Lord's reign <laughs> established on mercy, justice, and righteousness. And it brings order and stability to the created world. I think that sounds good. <laughs> Do you understand justice and righteousness to be the same thing? Probably. Yeah, but mercy, you forget, you didn't put mercy in there. Mercy. Well, mercy is not the same thing. Mercy is something. How about if it just said he, he reigns on mercy and righteousness? 
and they did and they left out justice. Would you think something has been left out? No. <laughs> I suspect they would. When your child disobeys your clear warning to never take medicine from the medicine cabinet and, and they overdose on an entire bottle of some pharmaceutical and you see your child seizing and dying from their action, what is the right thing for you to do? Try to save them. I know. What is the just thing for you to do? That baby will save Apply a remedy. <laughs> if you do what is just to your disobedient and rule-breaking child who's dying from an overdose, do you take your belt out and beat them? No. Do you say to your dying child, well, I... I could let you die from the consequences of your actions, but justice demands that I pour gas on you and burn you as long as you deserve. Now, I would prefer to just let you die, you see, because I'm, but because I'm a just parent, I'm required to enforce my rules. So as much as it grieves me, I must torture you and kill you. Would you say that to your child? No. Do you know that's what is taught in the Adventist church that God says to the wicked in the end? I can't just let you die of sin. Justice requires that I, in fact, perform a miracle and keep you alive for a period of time and torture you and execute you. It wouldn't be just if I simply let you die from the consequence of sin. That's actually what's taught officially in our church today. Why, you know, uh, all our preachers take all this Greek and Hebrew in school. How do they interpret it so wrong, wrong if they <laughs> take it and are supposed to understand it? And here I am. I never took Greek in college. I couldn't understand it anyway. So I have to take Because they do just the opposite of what I did. They say that word can mean two different things. And therefore, it means two different things. It can be translated to two different English words, and therefore it has two different meanings. One meaning is his righteous character. The other meaning is his just application of law. And the reason they do that is because they accept Satan's original lie that God's law works like human law, or God's law is imposed, or God's law requires, as, it, as Ellen White describes in Desire of Ages 761, that the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared the law of God could not be obeyed, and that every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And because they believe that God's law is imposed, and 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 therefore justice requires punishment, they will take the Greek and they will make two different theological threads from it rather than seeing that there's actually only one truth there. Yeah, but uh, they are, uh, they ask the Holy Spirit to guide their minds. Uh, I mean, that's what the preachers say up there. Let's uh, let the Holy Spirit take my words here. Yes, so, uh, and the Holy Spirit brings the truth just like it did to Pharaoh, and they are left free to decide to accept the truth or reject it. And when they reject the truth and go down the other line, their heart becomes hardened. And that's what happens. That's how hearts are hardened. I guarantee you most of the pastors that you deal with have had this truth presented to them, and they have chosen to reject it. I have a take on this, too, in that um, once somebody goes beyond the education, the the. the bachelor's degree, if you will, once you start getting into the master's and the, and the doctoral program, you begin to think more highly of 
your parsing, your your dissection of words, semantics. And so I think what happens to these people is that they, they're overcome with the with the privilege and the, the power over words that they have. And they also become more concerned about being right. Yeah, but, but Ken, that is, I agree with you, that happens. What you're describing absolutely happens, but it's a second order problem. Okay. It's a second order problem that occurs because they have a foundational belief that God's law works like human law, and therefore the right definitions and the right rules actually have some merit or value. And so then they go down this trail that you're saying. Yeah. And so the root issue is, is the, the false belief that God's law works like human law. And think this through. What is justice if God's law works like human law? It's punishment. That's what justice is. You have to hold accountable. You have to punish. Okay, so I'm going to take it just a half step further. I'm not trying to run too much time out here. The, the idea that if you are right, that's more important than understanding this distinction that we absolutely... No, 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 Ken. It's because, it's because once you have the human law view, right... Being right on these things establishes your righteousness because righteousness is in the right rule keeping and the right rule keeping is determined by the right definitions. And so you have to define things right to make sure that you're safe inside the rules. It's like playing baseball. You know what? The rules say that if I, I'm on, if I have my foot on the bag, you can't tag me out. So I need to define what the bag is, how many and what the rules are. And if I can define those and then make sure that I'm keeping the rules, then I'm safe. So really the problem still stems from the way we understand the law. Okay, I, I, I agree. What I'm saying is that these people have placed themselves at, on an elite status within the institutions of humanity. And therefore, That's right. And then pride and ego get involved. You're exactly right. They feel like at, to, in order for me to be a leader, I've got to be part of this block of institutional belief in the power of humanity to determine what is right and what is wrong. I'm not disagreeing, but at the root under that is their belief in how law works. So justice in a human system is imposed rules. What is the just thing in God's system? If you're ch in God's system, if someone breaks a rule, what's the bad thing for breaking the rule? That you're in legal trouble and God will use power to hurt you? Or any rule of God's you've broken, you've also broken his design law and you're injuring yourself. Right. When you say don't mess with the medicines and the child breaks your rule and takes a bottle of medicine, is the real problem that they've broken your rule or is the real problem that they've violated the laws of health and the rules sitting there to protect them? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Okay, this is reality. And so justice in God's kingdom is not rule enforcement, it's healing the damage that breaking his design laws has caused. And thus when we read in Romans 3, 23 to 26, we're gonna look at the NIV, the good news, and, and then the remedy. You'll see that the NIV takes a very legal approach. And they take these words, when you hear words justice and justify and so forth, remember what we just went through with the Greek, because you're gonna see the good news translates those same words in a different way. But here we go um, from the NIV. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by the grace, by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood, he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time 
so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You hear a lot of just, justice, um, punishment, atonement, a lot of legal language here. It sounds very legal, doesn't it? Now notice the good news. Everyone has sinned and is far away from God's saving presence, but by the free gift of God's grace, we are put right with him through Christ Jesus, who sets them free. God offered him so that by his blood, he should become the means by which people's sins are forgiven through their faith in him. God did this in order to demonstrate that he is righteous. In the past, he was patient and overlooked people's sins, but in the present time, he deals with their sins in order to demonstrate his righteousness. In this way, God shows that he himself is righteous and that he puts right everyone who believes in Jesus. Did that have a different feel? Yes. Yeah, I like that. Same Greek, translated legitimately two different ways by good scholars, feels different, different idea. And here's how I put it in the remedy. For all humanity is infected with the same disease of distrust, fear, and selfishness and is deformed in character and falls far short of God's glorious ideal for humanity. Yet all who are willing are healed freely by God's gracious remedy, which he has provided by Jesus Christ. God presented Jesus as the way and means of restoration. Now, through the trust established by the evidence of God's character revealed when Christ died, we may partake of the remedy procured by Christ. God did this to demonstrate that he is right and good because in his forbearance, he suspended for a time the ultimate consequences of us being out of harmony with his design for life. Yet he has been falsely accused of being unfair. He did it to demonstrate at the present time how right and good he is so that he would also be seen as being right when he heals those who trust in Jesus. All right, Sunday's lesson, it says, what do you think of the title? The Lord has made us. What do you, what do you think when you read the title? The Lord has made us. What comes to mind? He created creation. Creation. Forced. That's one of the things that came to my mind too. Absolutely. And so, but I asked the question, the Lord has made us. Is it referring to our individual biologic existence? Is it referring to our collective us? The Lord has made us the human species or the Lord has made us. Israel a nation, or the Lord has made the Adventist church a worldwide organization. The Lord has made us. Is it talking about us as individuals, us as a species, us as an organization? Well, it's a little ambiguous now, doesn't it? Yes. So God is the creator, no question about it. He spoke things into existence, space, time, energy, matter, life. All living things were created by him, including humanity. And I personally believe God formed Adam out of the dirt of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living being, and Eve was taken from tissue from the side of Adam. And both Adam and Eve were created directly by God by a divine action specifically to bring them into existence as living beings. And I believe God sometime later took divine action to specifically bring Jesus into the world and cause Mary to become pregnant and give birth to Jesus, a blend of our humanity and his divinity. And all three of these beings, Adam, Eve, and Jesus, when God completed his activities to bring them into human existence, they were all sinless. Everybody with me so far? Yes. What about you and me? Did any of us as individuals come into the world by a direct act of God to create a new sinless being? No, no, no. no. 
Well, how did we come into the world? Our parents. By God giving men the ability to procreate. There you go. You've all said it. God gave Adam and Eve a godlike ability. The ability to create beings in their image. He created human beings with the ability to make free will choices, and those choices develop and change us. We develop and change either for good or evil based on the choices we make, and our biology changes. And our epigenetics change. The instructions that sit above our DNA, telling which genes to turn on and which genes to turn off. They change through life based on our experiences. And when we procreate beings in our image, we not only pass along the DNA sequences, we pass along the epigenetic instructions that our lifestyle choices have added to our DNA sequences. And thus we will pass along to our children either advantages or disadvantages just as the Bible says that the sins pass down three and four generations. That's the epigenetic markers that we pass down and science shows our epigenetic markers pass down three and four generations before they're cleared off and new ones take their place. And all of this ability to procreate is only possible because of God's creation, his design, the delegated and endowed ability to procreate and God's ongoing sustaining power over the laws of which govern nature and our abilities. In other words, having children is only possible because God's original creation, his design, and his ongoing sustaining power that governs life on planet Earth. Yes or no? Yes. 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 However, having said all that, does that mean God acts with divine power to create each one of us individually? No. 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 This is a common belief, I will tell you. Oh, yeah. It is more commonly believed as far as I've been able to discern across the landscape of Christianity that God actively creates each one of us than God sustains the laws upon which life and health operate and his design is being worked out and therefore, it is our choice to create in our image under the sovereignty of God's design laws. It is it's actually more commonly believed that God is doing this. But does God create defective, sinful human beings? There are a lot of people who believe that. Yeah, I know. That they were made that way on purpose. And, and we would... We need them to be deformed and so on so that it draws out our compassion and service. If we did it, it creates a lot of problems and ability to trust God. Yes. I've had patients ask me, why did God want my child to be born with Down syndrome? Yes. Right. Why did God want my child to have this genetic or congenital malformation or problem? Uh, and, and I'm going to say, this is, this, this is the, the similar question the disciples asked Jesus. Who sinned that this man was born blind, yeah. him or his parents? Right. And Jesus' answer was neither. And Romans 8 tells us that all nature groans under the weight of sin. So this goes back again to the question of God's sovereignty. God controls what God controls. And he controls himself and he controls all the laws that govern nature. And one of the laws is the law of liberty, and he 
endowed or gives gifts to people. And when he gives gifts to people, he doesn't control their use of it. Did God give Samson supernatural strength? Yes. Yes. And eventually God took the gift back, yes? Yes. But before God took the gift, and he took the gift back because it was given conditions that Samson broke the conditions of. But as long as Samson kept the conditions, did he keep the strength? And did God control how he used the strength? Or did he use the strength in some ways that you would probably say are not quite righteous? No. <laughs> yes. No, notice, did, did God control how he used that strength? No. 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 When God gives gifts to people, he leaves people free, and God gave human beings procreative gifts. And he leaves us free in how we use them. So would we say that when a man rapes a woman and she becomes pregnant, that God is acting to create new life there? That's an act of God? No. Or we say a man is abusing an ability God gave him. Which is it? God is acting or the man is abusing an ability God gave him? Abusing the ability. Well, it's not commonly understood. Many people actually have been taught that if a man rapes a woman and she becomes pregnant, it was God's will and God acted there. Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. What a picture of God to teach these things. It's a gross distortion. How do I take the verse where, and I always took comfort in it, is that before you were born, I set you apart. Uh, I knew you in your mother's womb. Is that the one? In your mother's yeah. womb. Yeah. I took yeah. great so, comfort in so, 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 Finish your question. Go ahead. Well, that's it. You know, how do I, if, you know, he, he's not the one that formed me. Uh, he didn't knit me together, uh, then that seems like a lie to me. So, what is the verse actually teaching and what is it not teaching? I knew you in your mother's womb. I called you. Well, does the Bible elsewhere describe a certain pagan ruler that was called 150 years before he was born by name? Cyrus. Cyrus. Cyrus was called and known by God 150 years before he was born. Does that mean he was already physically in existence somewhere? It's foreknowledge. Oh, there you go. So God, this is a commentary on God's foreknowledge, foreknowing us even before we come out of our mother's womb. This is what this commentary is about. The knitting together, this is how do I understand this? from what we just described. Who is it that sustains the laws? Who is it that wrote in the code of our being? Who wrote these protocols on how life works? Who sustains the, um, the laws that govern our health? But if you're thinking of a particular passage in scripture, uh, I think next week it actually comes up in our lesson in the Psalms, in one of the Psalms about, I, I, I knit you together in your mother's womb, knew, knew you and so forth and so on. Let's let's unpack that one in our class next week when I'm there, okay? Uh, the fourth paragraph in the lesson, oh wait, let's see, is there anything else? That really? Yes, we have to get to Tuesday's lesson. We're gonna jump to Tuesday's lesson. And the title for Tuesday's lesson is God is Judge. When you hear this title, what thoughts and images and feelings come to mind? God is Judge. Courtroom. Yeah. Court. So uh, they should be showing you a couple of pictures. Do those images come to mind when you hear God is Judge? Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, now throw, throw the third and the fourth image up there on the screen. Now, consider the two places. The two places, one is a courtroom, the other is a hospital or doctor's office, right? Yes. And let's consider those two places in this idea of judge. Do people in both places, courtroom, hospital, get examined? Yes. 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 And in both places, are things revealed about the person being examined? Yes. And are sometimes in both places things revealed about the people being examined that they would prefer not to have revealed? Correct. <laughs> are judgments made in both places? Yes. Are verdicts given in both places? You may not use the word verdict, but when a doctor makes a diagnosis, what's he doing? Verdict. Okay. Are decisions made by other people that impact the one being examined in both places? Yes. Are decrees or findings made by the examining authority in both places? then are the same things happening to the one being examined in both places? No. 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 Well, what's the difference? They're being examined, they're having things exposed, judgments are being made, verdicts are being rendered, decisions are others, decrees and findings are being made. If, if, if all these are happening in both places, why is it not the same thing? One, what's the difference? One's for healing. In one, in one case, somebody's being set up to be punished. Mm -hmm. Tear down. And, and, but what makes the difference as to why one place is healing and one place is set up for punishment? What makes the difference? You're describing the outcomes, but what makes it that way? The way you see law. The, the law being acted upon in those places. In the first setting, the courtroom, the law being followed and applied is worldly, imposed, made up, arbitrary rules that created beings make up which require judicial oversight and external enforcement. In the second, the hospital, the law being followed and applied is God's law, design law, the laws of health, the, law, the, the laws that the creator built reality to operate upon, and that life is required to harmonize with. Thus, the sick one requires not punishment, but healing, restoration, lest they die of their terminal condition. Now, which judgment do you think rightly represents the truth about God's government? It is the diagnostic judgment of what's wrong and what's needed to fix and to heal. That's the type of judgment God wields. The judicial model with the penal legal model of salvation is a lie based on accepting Satan's lie that God's law functions like human law. And that's all we have time for today. I was going to go into Psalm 75 where some of this language is brought over in the NIV that makes God out to be the judge and judgment. I'd encourage you to go home this afternoon and check Psalm 75, 2 through 8 out in the NIV and compare it with the Remedy version and see what you think. Let's go ahead and close with prayer and then we'll do our Q&A time. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for another opportunity to share and study. We thank you that your law is designed. You are creator. You have 
built the universe to operate on love and on truth and on freedom and you sustain these eternal laws and that you have given us real liberty and we ask now that your spirit of truth and love will fill our hearts transform us and enable us to carry the saving message for this time to the world that you might come soon we pray in your holy name amen